You are listening to the Crossroads Community Church Podcast. To learn more about CRCC, including worship times, visit us at crcconline.com. Well, we're in a brand new series, you see, called Then and Now, and let me kind of tell you the premise of this. I believe that some of the greatest stories in God's Word and the greatest lives that God has brought to the forefront wasn't as much for those people in that day as much as it was for you right now. Because some of these things that we're going to study that happened back then are really for you right now so that you can move forward. And then here's kind of the moment. So that you're right now for your family and family members and other people you have in your life so that when they get to the then, they'll look back to your now and it'll change their lives too. And so we've entitled it Then and Now, and it's going to be a great time. And, and it's very easy. I'm going to be taking a biblical character every single week, and you're going to have to listen quickly because I'm going to talk quickly because there's not enough time to really dive into every aspect. But I'm going to try to give you a quick synopsis of that character and what that character meant in a time frame, how that applied to Christ, and then how does that apply to us today. So we're going to start today, and he's like, well, who are you going to start with? Well, outside of Jesus Christ, there is one character that gains more biblical writings than any other character other than Christ. Christ, obviously, you have the four Gospels, and the whole Bible is centered around Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the not central theme. He is the theme of God's Word in his salvation. Jesus Christ was fully man, yet fully God. So literally, in the beginning, if you start out in John, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's a direct uh, reflection of Jesus Christ himself. But other than Jesus Christ, there is one character that gains as much penmanship, second to Christ only, that is a major central theme that I promise is put on his life that really affects you and me, And I want to spend a little bit of time. He shows up on the scene around 1 Samuel chapter 16. And you know of him as a shepherd boy that ends up slaying a giant. Everybody know where we're going now? But this David character, who ends up being King David, is a major deal in God's Word. And I just want to spend just a second and talk about it. You're going to see some slides that show up that kind of give you a timeline and a time frame. I'm going to give you some some stuff that you can write down, and again, I encourage you to do that. But David would have been born somewhere around 1030 B.C. And you see this amazing timeline to put together. Thank you for doing that. And you're going to see that he spends 30 years of his life in preparation for 40 years reigning as the king of Judea and Israel. He is the second, some people would say third, because there was a very brief moment where he had to go slaughter one of King Saul's stepsons that was just for a moment. But some people would say second. I would tell you, biblically speaking, the third king of Israel. And he follows the first reigning king, King Saul. But just so you'll know, he shows up on the scene, and here's what I'm going to get real quick. And if you want to take some notes, that'll be fine. He shows up to the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 16 with this prophet Samuel, 
who goes to this guy named Jesse who lives in Bethlehem, who has a farm, and he has these children. And God has told Samuel that there is a king that he's going to anoint because Samuel has gotten very discouraged because the original king that God anointed, the first king of Israel, Saul, has taken his eyes off of God And like most people, because of things going well, when things go well, we have a tendency to start going, (laughs) whoo, baby, I'm the man. And the more he starts thinking that he's the man, the more the prophet Samuel says, you ain't the man. And it gets to the point where Samuel says, Lord, please send somebody else to end up being the king of your people. Because these people have come out of Exodus. They're setting up the promised land. And in that, he goes to Jesse. And Jesse, being this man, this father of these boys, he says, oh, yeah, I've got some boys, I'm sure, the one you're looking for. And he starts parading all these boys in front of the prophet Samuel. And Samuel's going, nope, nope. And these guys are older, and they're big, and they're buff. They're the older brothers. And after parading all of them there, he gets to a point, and the prophet Samuel says, it's not one of these. Do you not have any other sons? And he goes, well, I've got this one scrawny guy. He's kind of a shepherd. He, he, he spends a lot of time outside. And so they go and get this, most people would say he's either 10 or 15 years old. We don't know exactly through God's word. But most theologians would say he's somewhere between the age of 10 or 15. If you were to ask me, I'm with those say, well, you know what, 13 sounds real good. That's between 10 and 15. But somewhere around that age... He comes in, and as soon as he comes in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says there's an accountant, or there's something about his looks, his presence, and this spirit that he exists. And immediately the prophet Samuel says, oh yeah, this is the one. In which Jesse and the boys go, are you serious? Like him? Like he's the baby child. But it's one of those things that he is anointed. And what's really crazy is in this 1 Samuel chapter 16, around verse 23, not only does the prophet Samuel anoint King David as the anointed, soon-to-be king of Israel, but it says that the Spirit of the Lord at that point bestowed on him because of this anointing. And because the Spirit of the Lord now was placed on David's life, the Spirit of the Lord left King Saul. And not only did the Spirit of the Lord leave King Saul, but Scripture will tell you at that moment an evil spirit was put on King Saul. Now, I know you're thinking, what? Listen, I'm just the messenger. That's what God's Word talks about. But here's how God works. So this evil spirit's put on King Saul, and he starts having these mental issues, these mental struggles. We know King David is like, ooh-hoo, shepherd boy, slingshot, giant, because we know the whole story. But what you may not realize is that most of the people knew David in Old Testament prior to him being king because he was a phenomenal musician. He was known for his musical abilities. He played the lyre. And so, in fact, if you read in 1 Samuel verses 7, chapter 17 and 18, you will see where King Saul is having these tormented issues in his mind. So he therefore asked that David, who he doesn't know has been anointed as the new king, to come and be his armor bearer. And when he had these mental issues, David would play the lair and it would help soothe the king. Now, amazingly enough, that God has anointed David 
and now put him in a place to serve the king, to start learning everything he needs to be to become king. Well, because of that relationship, he now is in really good with the king. He's starting to build a relationship with his son, Jonathan, who's the oldest son of King Saul. And he goes home to, to his dad, Jesse, and Jesse says, hey, man, do me a favor. I know we're battling these Philistines out in the, in the fields, and will you do me a favor and go check on your brothers and make sure they have something to eat, maybe take this with you. And David can do that because he has a relationship with King Saul. And he goes out there, and he, he sees on this hill, and he sees this big 10-foot giant that's Saying, oh, you bunch of dogs, you bunch of wimps, you bunch of losers. Now, they doesn't say that in God's word. That's Mickey's translation. But if I was a giant, those are the words I would have used. And David says, why are y'all letting him talk to God's people like this? Because David at the time is probably around 16 years old. Anybody remember when you were 16? So he goes to Saul and he says, let me go at him. And Saul's like, dude, are you serious? He says, I tell you what, go get my armor. Of course, David already knows all this because he's been the armor bearer. He has a relationship here. He comes back with this armor that's too big, and he's like, this ain't me, man. Let me, let me do it myself. So he goes, and next thing you know, he takes off with some stones in his pocket and a slingshot, and he goes running at this giant, and he declares that today the Lord will put your head in my place. And he slings and boom and slays the giant, and hence every sports movie we've ever known has been birthed. And he brings the head of the giant back to the king. And in that moment, we read where Saul basically ends up adopting David into his family without officially adopting him. And says, from this point forward, he will always be around me. That seems like a great idea because he's eventually, catch this, he's already been anointed as king. But now he's going to be around the king all the time. And one of the things that happens is after this battle, everything changes. In fact, I wrote down this scripture. I want to read it to you. It changes in 18 verse 7. After killing the giant, as they're entering back to the city, Saul loses his mind over one simple phrase that's being sang to these, to these people, these warriors, these heroes, in particular to David, and it says this. And this won't be on your screen, but this is chapter 18, verse 7 of 1 Samuel. It said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousand. And Saul hears this, and he goes from being David is the man. I want him to be around me all the time. To pride wells up in his heart, and from that day he declares that he's going to kill David. Well, the climax of this story of the pre-reigning of David happens in a cave. Because Saul and his army fall asleep in this cave, and beknownst to them that while they're asleep, this is the same cave that David was hiding in. So while they're asleep, David comes out and he cuts just the corner of Saul's robe, and he keeps it. And later on, he goes to Saul and he lets him know, if I wanted to, I could have killed you, but I chose not to. I only cut the corner of your robe. Well, all of this does not stop until 1 Samuel chapter 31, where all of a sudden the first king, King Saul of Israel, ends his life in battle by falling on his own sword. 
If you were to read that at the end of chapter 31, it literally talks about King Saul being fearful of what they would do to him if they captured him. And they've already captured all of his sons, his, his real sons who were in the lineage to be king. And they've killed all of them, including Jonathan. And they now are fixing to kill King Saul. He tries to get his new armor bearer to kill him, but he refuses to do that. So King Saul ends his own life by falling on his own sword. This all happens around David being roughly 30 years old. So I want you to kind of catch this. You're like, Mickey, this is a lot. Just hang in with me. He was anointed as king between age 10 or 15, but he does not take the throne till age 30. First thing I want you to know, I believe God has something major for your life. Have patience. Like some of you will ask so many questions about what's going on in your life right now. And you'll say, but I can remember as a boy, I can remember as a young girl that I felt like God was asking me to do something. What happened? Life. And I want you to know that God hadn't forgot about you. And God hasn't changed his promises over your life. Just like with King David. There was anointing that was on his life, but you know what? That anointing never left him, but King David was obedient even when he had the opportunity to slay what most people would call his enemies. He respected God and God's authority to allow God to be in charge of the distractions rather for him to eliminate the distractions. See, some of you guys are like me. If you're not careful you're going to waste your life trying to eliminate things that it's not yours to eliminate. Did you catch that? If you're not careful, you're going to waste your life trying to eliminate things that you aren't in the authority to eliminate. You're going to try to, to restructure things in your life that it's not yours to restructure. What is yours is to be obedient to God and to the things that he's called you to do. Well, after this, we get into 2 Samuel. And all of a sudden, we no longer have Samuel the prophet. We now have a new prophet that's on the scene named Prophet Nathan. And Nathan and, da and, Nathan and David become amazing friends, and he is used to help. And we enter 2 Samuel with God saying, this is a man after my own heart, and he's willing to do whatever it takes because David has now entered the reign. He will be looked at as one of the greatest kings that ever lived. It's called the golden age of the Israelites. The only time there was more wealth was when his son, Solomon, ends up taking over the reigning concept of Israel after 40 years, which is after 2 Samuel when you start the first book of 1 Kings. And everything's going great at the beginning of 2 Samuel. David's now stepping into this new role. He has this understanding of what it means to be king. He's going out and he's conquering the people because God's on his side. He's doing all these things. And at chapter 7, there's a pivotal moment that affects you and me that takes place between David and God Yahweh. David asked Nathan that he wants to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant to dwell in. 
Prior to that moment, the Ark of the Covenant has always been mobile. And so he wants, he's basically asking God, God, I want to build you a house. And if you were to read chapter 7, God's response is, no thank you. I don't need a house. I've always dwelled where my people are and where my covenant has been, in the tents and roamed across the land. But then he makes a covenant with David. He says, but I, and this is God speaking through Nathan, and he says these words, but I will build you a house. And it is through your lintage that a king will come that will establish my kingdom on this earth. And he will build the house of God, and it will be a place that I dwell for eternity. Now, at that time, David's thinking of a building, and what God was talking about was a person. And what he was saying was that through King David, we were going to get the one and only true king, Jesus Christ, who would establish you and I as his church. And rather than being a place of brick and mortal that you come to worship him, that he would be a part of our lives, and we would live forever with him, with a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we would be his permanent temple. But you know, everything changed in the middle of all this huge covenant, in the middle of all these conquerings, there's one other story that most of us know about King David, isn't there? Happens around chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. You know, little lady, sunbathing on a roof. David's people are at war. He was supposed to be at war, but he was taking a break. He goes out on the rooftop. He looks across the rooftops. He sees this lady sunbathing. That's the biblical way of naked. And he goes, hmm, buddy. And he calls for her. Her name was Bathsheba. And he sleeps with her. And she becomes pregnant. So being the amazing genius that he is as a king, he says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll call for her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And I'll have him come off of the battlefield. And I will get him to sleep with his wife. And he'll think that, you know, that she's pregnant because of him. Well, Uriah is more dedicated than King David. He comes off and he sleeps outside of her door. Because he's still thinking about his brothers that are at battle. And he's not willing to compromise what he's called to do. So he sleeps outside the door. David is distraught by this. So he turns around and he calls him in again. And he gets him drunk. Hoping that he would sleep with his wife, but yet again, he still denies himself and will not do this. So then David turns around and says, you know what, there's only one thing I can do. He calls to the chief of the army and says, I want you to attack the gate of the city. One thing we know about biblical times is whenever you're going to attack a wall or a city, you never attack the gate because that's where the most people are going to be. That's where the most people with the bows and the arrows, that's where the most people with swords, that's where the, that's where the fortress is going to be the strongest. Because they know that could be the weakest area to get into the city. So he calls this general and he says, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to take Uriah the Hittite and put him in the front. And I want you to storm the gate. And as you get close to the gate, I want you to retreat and leave him there. And Uriah the Hittite gets killed. And in that moment, in that moment, it says that God mourned because of what David did. 
Well, David thinks he gets away from this, but then comes in chapter 12, prophet Nathan. And he comes up to David and he tells this story of, of what would you do with a man that, that owned everything? He was a rich man. And a traveler was coming through and he was wanting something. And rather than taking something that he had with all of his wealth and all of his glory, he turned around and went to the poorest person who only had one little sheep. And he took that sheep and he sacrificed and gave it to the traveler. And David said, that guy should be killed. Whoever that man is, he deserves death. And Nathan looks at him and he says, you're that man. And in that moment, David understands what it means to start understanding guilt and what it means to start repenting. In fact, I want to read you something that sometimes we miss. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And this is Nathan talking to David when he's getting ready to explain to him that, you know, after like, you're that man, listen to this. It's the end of chapter 8. I'll read the whole verse. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wife, and into your arms I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. He, he actually is telling, Nathan is telling him, speaking on God's behalf, David, on behalf of God, he's given you everything. You are a shepherd boy at age 13 that was anointed as king, that slayed the giants, that wrestled lions, that did all these things. Like, you were the man. You did all this stuff. God has blessed you, but it still wasn't enough. And then listen to what it says, because I want you to hear this. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. See, prior to his betraying, of his covenant with God and betraying of Uriah the Hittite, despite everything that God had done in David's life, God was still willing to do more because that's who God is. Well, to sum this up a little bit quickly, Nathan says you will lose your child. The child that she was pregnant with becomes deathly ill. And out of that, we get majority of the Psalms that we read in our Old Testament canon because David was a musician. And we start to understand a little bit more what repentance means. But the kingdom's never really the same. All of a sudden, David has some other sons, and these other sons end up raping one of their, their sisters. And you have this plight, and so because of this rape, then one of the brothers kills his brother because of the rape. I mean, you can spend time reading it. It's all through 2 Samuel's. Things do not, it's not like butterflies and rainbows. And all of a sudden, David's fearing for his life because one of his sons is trying to take over his king, his kingdom. But in that process, God still hears David's heart and allows his repentance to be able to bring him back. So much so that we end 2 Samuel with Bathsheba, the one that he had betrayed the husband of Uriah the Hittite, David and Bathsheba have this child, this boy, who you know of as King Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, who ends up being the author of Proverbs and also ends up being one of the greatest kings in the Israelites' history. And he turns around and builds what will be the palace for God. You say, Mickey, that's a whole lot. 
That's the then. Can I give you the now? Can I take the last six, seven minutes of this service and help you understand what does that have to do with you? I think there's three things that we should get. One of them I'm going to read in a minute. The first thing you need to understand is what I said a minute ago. I believe that God has something major for your life if you will be patient and you'll pursue him. Now, I want to make sure that I, read, I say this very, very carefully. I do not want this to come across as a legalistic statement. But I want you to understand something. Your choices and the things that you choose to participate in will affect the way that God is allowed to open up his floodgates and bless you. You cannot live a life and do whatever you want to do and then expect God to bless you as if you're perfect and clean. You do have consequences for your actions. The amazing thing is, is that we learn through David that through repentance, we can have a right relationship with God. But that right relationship with God does not mean that grace gives us the ability to do whatever in the heck we want to do. Like, just because we are out there and we have a relationship with God, we still have consequences for our choices. You want me to give you a great example of that? Some of you right now, your greatest hurts you had nothing to do with. For some of you in this room, your greatest hurts, you had nothing to do with it. It could be a parent that is, has abused you. It could be parents that are divorced. It could be an uncle or an aunt. It could be some sort of an addiction. We call it generational sin. Have you ever seen somebody that's in a situation that you go, wow, how did these people get here? And you start looking at where they're at and their environment and where they grew up, and you realize that, that the choices that people make, they affect more than just them. And I want you to understand from King David, one of the biggest things I want you to grasp, listen to me very clearly, your now is going to affect other people's later. Just like David's then is affecting your now. The other thing I think we need to get out of this is despite everything that David did, you know what God calls him twice in his word? A man after my own heart. You say, what? A man after God's, you're talking about an adulterer, a murderer, a fleer, a giant killer, a coward, a liar, like that's it? And I think it's not because of the actions that he did. Remember what I said at the very beginning? The world's not consumed with the way you act, but they're very consumed with the way you react. I think it's because of the way he reacted. See, he, he ended up hitting his face and repenting, and it says he was in sackcloths and ashes. And it said he mourned his child. Amazingly enough, if you read in 2 Samuel, he literally is on his face crying out to God, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, save my son, Lord, forgive me. Tears, anxiety, sackcloth, ashes, doing nothing else. As soon as he hears that his son has died, you know what he does? He gets up, he washes his face, and he moves forward. In fact, some people will question that, saying, did he really even have a desire of repentance? And listen to me, here's the, the other thing. Very much so. But a part of repentance 
is also accepting your mistakes. Listen to me very carefully. Some of you are battling and fighting something that you can't win. God's already forgiven. God's already delivered. It's time to get up. And it's time to move forward. You say, Mickey, how do I do that? Well, that's where we get into the scripture today, and it's going to be very brief. Psalms chapter 32. Psalms chapter 32 is a psalm from King David right in the middle of all this when he understands repentance. I believe in today's 2020 church, we do not understand repentance whatsoever. I don't mind telling you one of the reasons why I wanted to start off this series with this is because of Mr. David Hyde and his message at the beginning of August when he talked about this one word that God spoke to him as far as repent. But I think most of us don't understand it because we learned in kindergarten something that's not true. We learned in kindergarten that I can do whatever I want to, and if I look at them and say, I'm sorry, then that makes everything okay. That works in kindergarten over crowns. That does not work at age 35 in the middle of your life. You need to understand as adults and as older teenagers, the older you get, I'm sorry is not just words that makes everything be washed away. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. In fact, some people have prayed this type of a prayer. Please don't mishear me. But this is what a pastor told you. You can have a relationship with Jesus if you'll say this prayer. Dear Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things that I've done. Now forgive me. I accept your son Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Saying to God, I'm sorry, is not repentance. You're no different than the kindergartner who snatched somebody's crowns and got somebody emotionally upset, and the teacher caught you, and they said, give those back. Now say you're sorry, and you said, I'm sorry. Say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. And then you go back over there keep doing everything you've always done. See, true true repentance is an emotional anxiety, and I use that word loosely in 2020, an emotional moment in your life that you truly in your spirit say, if I could go back, I would never do it like that. And because I cannot go back, God is my witness. I will do everything in my earthly power to not do that again. You say, oh, so Mickey, repentance is perfection. No, because you have a sinful lifestyle. You were born that way. So you're still going to make mistakes, but there should be a growing in that. See, here's the way you've heard people say it. Repentance is going one direction and literally you put your foot in the ground and you turn and you say, you know, I'm not going to walk that way anymore. Let me give you a great example that you'll be able to understand. Somebody that has the disease of alcoholism 
Can't say, God, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be this anymore, and then keep saying, I'm going to be a little social drinker now. No, if you got the disease of alcoholism, you know what you better do? By golly, you better put your foot in the ground, you better turn away from it, and you better learn how to say no. Why? Because you can't say yes. Because it's got you. You say, oh, so this is the message about drinking. Nope. This is the message about repentance. And depending on where you're at, will depend on what you can say yes to. And for most of you, you're saying yes to trying to fix something rather than saying yes to the person that fixed it. That's the reason why you struggle with repentance. Because you're trying to say yes to something that you want rather than saying yes to a God that wants something from you. Say, what does he want from me? He wants you to pursue him and learn self-control and learn what it means to try to be holy. Can I read for you in Scripture what it says? Chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is King David talking. Now listen to verse 3 and 4. This is King David. He's going to tell you what repentance is. Listen to this. For what I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In fact, I'm not going to spend time right now doing it. But if you have your Bible right beside it, if you're on a tablet, if you're on your phone, highlight this and go back and read it later. Go to Psalms chapter 51. Psalms chapter 51. Later on, I'm not going to read it now because we don't have that much time, and read, and that will give you a real good understanding of what repentance is in David's life. He is crying out to God saying, Lord, take this from me. He starts crying out to God in chapter uh, 51, verse 7 of the psalm, and he starts letting him understand that, that God wants to work something on the inside, not just the outside. He wants to be cleansed with a new heart. He's crying out to God, God, will you restore to me the joy of my salvation? But most people's repentance looks like this. Man, I got caught. God helped me not have so many consequences. Lord, I got caught. Lord, help me not have so many consequences. Oh, man. Lord, I'm so sorry I screwed up. Please help them understand. That's not repentance. That's selfishness. See, the same reason why you got into a situation is because you were self-gratifying yourself. And even in getting caught, you know what you're trying to do? Self-gratify yourself. Lord, I promise if you'll just help me this one time, I'll never do this again. Oh, yes, you will. This is about the eighth time you've prayed this to me this year. So I'm not going to buy into your lies. But what I will do is I'm going to allow you to understand what it means to repentance. So you're going to have some consequences. And one day you're going to find out eventually in this thing called life what it means to say, you know what? That's just not worth it. Like I would rather have God's more than that more. And then listen to what he says. Verse 5. 
After he's talking about his bones wasting away. After he's talking about groaning all day long. After he's talking about day and night, this heavy hand that's upon him. After he's talking about his strength being dried up like the heat of the summer. Then he says these words. I acknowledge my sin to you. I do not cover up my iniquity. And I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sins. See, there's three things that I want you to know that are about repentance. First, you've got to acknowledge it. You've got to understand what you're doing. You've got to acknowledge it. The second is you've got to refuse to cover it up. Most people, if given the option, like we want to cover it up, you've got to refuse. And then the last thing you have to understand is you've got to be determined to confess it. You know, David's then, and the way it really affects our now, is really the concept of a lot of things. There's so much more we could talk about. But I think for us, it's really one main concept. If you want to move forward, then you're going to have to learn to deal with some of the things in your past. I'm not talking about I'm sorry. And think that that just makes everything okay. If you were encouraged by today's podcast and would like to experience other talks, visit us at crcconline.com.